I bring greetings to you from Grace Church of DuPage. Uh, our church has a great relationship with this church. and In fact, uh, a number of us pray for Rock Valley Bible Church uh, as uh, Steve prepares to bring the word here in this place. So we count it a privilege. Uh, Steve actually helps facilitate that in sending out a number uh, to a number of pastors really all over the country at this time, the different messages that we are preaching on Sunday. And so there's a collection of us that pray for one another, and it's a privilege, and I appreciate Steve for doing that. Well, as Steve mentioned, we are going to be studying together uh, the chapter out of Isaiah, chapter Isaiah 53. So if you're not there in your Bibles, please turn over to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 could be described as one of the clearest, if not the clearest, description of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. Even clearer than the accounts that were given in the New Testament. It's absolutely amazing. And we know from a number of New Testament passages, Steve already read 1 Peter chapter 2, which would be one of the more significant ones, but throughout the New Testament, Authors quoting from Isaiah 53 and applying this directly to the person of Jesus Christ. One of those more memorable passages of Scripture would be the account in Acts 8 of the Ethiopian eunuch who was there in his carriage, if you remember, reading Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. And he asked Philip, as Philip approached his carriage, who is this speaking about? And the Scripture says that, uh, that uh, Philip uh, went from there and explained to him the good news of Jesus Christ. So as we read this text this morning, I want you to think appropriately, as the New Testament would have us to do, of the ministry and the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm actually going to start uh, in uh, chapter 52, verses 13 and following, because really that the end of chapter 52 and all of Isaiah 53 make up an entire servant song. I'll talk more about that in just a moment, but they all go together. We'll be focusing on Isaiah 53, but 52, if you can think about it this way, is the general account of who Jesus Christ is, the suffering servant, and Isaiah 53 is the more detailed account of that. So follow along in your Bibles with me, starting at Isaiah 52, verse 13 and following. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond, beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray together before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for such a clear testimony of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we need it. Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would be with each one of us this morning, that we might leave this place having a greater sense of what Jesus has done on our behalf, having an amazement about who He is and what He's done for us. Lord, I pray that we would rest more deeply in His finished work, trusting in Him alone for our salvation and for our standing in Him. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to set Isaiah 53 in a bit of a biblical context, we need to rewind all the way back to Genesis 1. If you're familiar with Genesis 1, God made the entire world, the heavens and the earth, and He made man. He gave them a perfect environment by which to live in. They were innocent, without sin, without death, and without the curse. In Genesis 2, God gives them a warning. Really, one law that they must keep. That they should not partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they should, that they would surely die both a physical death as well as a spiritual death. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fell into sin, partaking of the fruit, seeing more goodness in that fruit than they did the person of God. They plunged themselves and the human race that would follow after them into sin, under a curse, and into death. Why do we see all the devastation, the death, the sin in our own lives, in our country, and around the world. Genesis 1-3 through give us those answers. 
By Genesis 4, we have the first murder. Genesis 5, in some ways, is an obituary. We have a list of all the patriarchs. And their names are given, the years of their lives, their children. And at the end of each account, it says these three sobering words, and he died. So it goes through Adam. And at the end of Adam's account, it says, and he died. And then Seth, and he died. Then Enosh, and he died. Yet before one person died, God gave a promise in Genesis 3.15 that one day from the offspring of that woman, He would send one to crush the very head of the serpent. He would overturn the curse. And as biblical revelation progresses, we could go on and on through the accounts of Genesis and onwards. But Genesis chapter 12, God raises up Abraham and He gives him the promise that through his seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Scriptures begin to answer that burning question, where is our hope? How will we be, will we be freed from death and sin and the curse? And so God raises up a nation, Israel, part of Adam's seed, or Adam's seed as well as Abraham's seed. They are to be a light to the nations. They are to show the nations where to find their hope in God. And if you'll turn back to Isaiah 1, we get a report card on how the nation is doing. They're not faring so well. They really never did fare so well. In Isaiah chapter 1, it's a very dismal report card. He says, starting in verse 3, says, The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation of people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. In fact, he'll go on, if you'll note down there in verse 10, that he compares Israel to Sodom and Gomorrah. They were to be a light to the nations. They were to point the nations to God where to find salvation. Yet they too had found themselves in a great and deep darkness. And yet if you look down at verse 18, there is another promise another promise of hope that the Lord will do something. He Himself will act. Verse 18, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. How will the Lord do this? How will the Lord bring redemption? How will the Lord save His people in the world from sin? How will the curse be overturned? How will death be put away? And the answer to that question is found plainly in the servant of Isaiah 53. So feel free to turn back to that chapter at this time, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, if you don't know, is called a servant song. There are four servant songs in the book of Isaiah where probably most familiar with this one in Isaiah 53, but Isaiah 42, 49, 
and chapter 50 are also servant songs describing this Messiah, this servant king that would come one day and lay down his life and then raise again and reign as king. The first three servant songs focus more on his majesty, his kingly nature, his power, and they give hints that there's more to this king than what we might think, that he's going to be rejected, he's going to suffer. And really here as we come to Isaiah 53, we hit the climax of his suffering. It focuses in on the solution that God has brought, that God is going going to now bear his saving power, his arm, it says in verse 1, and bring salvation through this king that would come and suffer as a substitution for all who would believe in Him. So look there in verse 1. It says there, Who has believed what they've heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This really sets the tone for the whole chapter. Who has believed this message? It's really unbelievable in many ways. It's unbelievable in the sense that this servant that was coming, this Messiah, this King that's promised who would come, was hard to believe. He's not the man the world would pick to be their leader, to be their King. He wasn't presidential, if you will. But he's also unbelievable in the sense that he's amazing. What Isaiah 53 tells us about this servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, is utterly amazing. And that would be my prayer for us this morning, is that we would just walk away amazed at the person of Jesus Christ and what He's done on our behalf. Note there in verse 1, he talks about the arm of the Lord. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord in Scripture is a metaphor for the power of God. The men are more familiar with that as we like to flex our muscles before one another talking about our supposed power. We get that from Scripture. It's the arm of the Lord. The the Lord is powerful. But it's not just raw power. It's personal power. A few years ago, I took a trip to the country of Armenia. And uh, as we were there teaching in the seminary, we also did some sightseeing. And we were at uh, this one location and there was a plaza at two levels. There was a lower level. It was all outdoors. It was all concrete. There was a lower level and there was an upper level. And the upper level was five to six feet higher than the lower level. And there, when you travel to different countries, you realize all the safety concerns that we have here in America don't necessarily exist overseas. And so there was no railing, no fence to keep anybody from falling over into that lower level. And uh, there was a little child, a little girl, probably about the age of three. And I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old, so I understand that uh, these little kids immediately go to the most dangerous place that they can find and start playing, right? And this little girl did as well. She was there playing right on the edge. And I'll never forget this for, for my entire life. It just is, it's really um, etched in my mind. There was a woman, the mom, that was standing right there and she was watching her child play. And as, as you can guess, the child went overboard. And uh, she was plummeting and the, the woman only just by sheer instinct, by adrenaline, reached down and grabbed that little girl by her arm and pulled her up in an instant. And it was amazing she was able to do it. 
But that's what the arm of the Lord is. It's not just raw power. It's personal power. It's loving power. It's caring power. It's willing to do whatever it would take to rescue that soul. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's the question that sets the context for this text. And the rest of this song, verses 2-12, through 12, is revealing the arm of the Lord. So if you're here today and you begin to gain a sense of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done for you, that is God's grace to you working through this Scripture, revealing the power of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you should not take that lightly. This song splits into two parts. It first focuses on verses 2-9 through on the servant's humiliation. And I've just titled that first point, Unbelievable Humiliation. And then in verses 9-12, through it focuses on his exaltation. And I've just entitled that, his unbelievable exaltation. So I just want us to focus, first of all, on the unbelievable humiliation of Jesus Christ. Let's ask ourselves this first question. What makes Jesus' humiliation so hard to believe? What makes His humiliation so hard to believe? Well, first of all, in verse 2, Jesus was very unimpressive. He was unimpressive. Look there what it says at the beginning of verse 2, giving God's view of Jesus Christ. It says, For He grew up before Him, speaking of God the Father, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This was God's view. He was a young plant. He was a root. He was full of life. He was the source of life. Yet where was He planted? In dry ground. He was planted in the midst of a people who were not ready for Him. Who were spiritually arid and dry and were not prepared. Secondly, He was unvalued. He was unimpressive and He was unvalued. Note the last half of uh, verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. It says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him. No beauty that we should desire Him. There was nothing about Jesus Christ that would have been appealing to us. There was no majestic nature to Him. No royalness to Him. As we just celebrated Christmas, we're familiar with the story of Jesus' birth. He was born in, very, in a very humble state. He wasn't presidential. He wasn't kingly. He wasn't beautiful. He wasn't powerful. He wasn't wealthy. All of the things that the world would look to to follow after, He was not. He was unimpressive and He was unvalued. Look at verse 3. It says, He was despised and rejected by men. That word despised means that he was, he was considered by his, by his peers as being worthless, unworthy of attention. It goes on there and describes Him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was not free from adversity. He did not live on easy street. That word sorrows describes mental and physical anguish. He was a person who suffered during his life. He was acquainted. Better, 
He was very familiar. He knew grief. He knew sorrow. In the words of Hebrews 4.15, the writer says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knew our sorrows. He knew our griefs. In fact, we could say that Jesus knew our sin and our sorrow and our grief even better than we do. Because we will oftentimes give in to the temptation before the full weight of that temptation. And we'll often try to circumnavigate the trial before the full weight of that trial falls upon us. But Jesus never gave in. He faced the full weight of sorrow and grief and trial to the maximum. All the way to the cross. And it says there at the end of verse 3, And we esteemed Him not. The word esteemed is an accounting term. It means to calculate. It means when people looked at the Lord Jesus Christ, they appraised His worth. They summed it up and counted Him as nothing. This man amounts to nothing. I find this convicting in my own life. Do I really esteem the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I really understand the value of who He is? How do you know that you esteem Christ? How do you know that you value Christ? Well, if you value Christ, you will rest in Christ. If you value what He did, His mission on this earth was to come and to die as a substitute for sinners that they might be accounted as righteous in Him. If you really get that, you will rest in Him. If you really value His work and see what He amounts to, if you really esteem Him, you will rest in Him. If you value Him less, if you value Him little, you will in your mind sum up that whatever His work was, was not enough. It was insufficient. And so I must add my own work to His work in order to satisfy the Lord. When we esteem Jesus, we will not think of Jesus as accomplishing 99% of my salvation We will not think of Him as getting me 99% of the way to the Father and I will take care of that remaining 1%. When we really esteem Jesus, we'll understand that He did it all. He did 100%. I need not add anything of my own. That all my sin, guilt, and shame, no matter how much it was, how often it was, how deep it was, is fully covered in the cross. When I really esteem the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't live my life with Jesus plus my guilt, or Jesus plus my shame, or Jesus plus this ongoing low-grade sense that God has a frown over my life. But every day I walk with Jesus completely at rest in His finished work, understanding that He covered it all. Do you esteem Jesus this morning? Do you value Him?
he's hard to believe. He's not the man we would have picked. He's not the man the world would have picked. His humiliation is unbelievable in that it's hard to believe. But his humiliation is also unbelievable in the sense that it's absolutely amazing what Jesus did for us in suffering and going to the cross. Let me ask you this. What makes Jesus' humiliation so amazing according to Isaiah 53? What makes it so amazing? Well, verses 4 through 6 give us just an awesome explanation of that. First of all, Jesus heals to the uttermost. He brings healing to the uttermost places of our soul. As we look through verses 4 through 6, I want you to notice this comparison to our sin, of our sin, to the sufficiency of His sacrifice. He keeps going back and forth, back and forth. How do I talk about sin? Do I talk about sin? Do I talk about sin in the sense of I made a mistake? I fell short. I have shortcomings. Our culture no longer has a category for sin. They don't talk about sin. They don't talk about iniquity. They do not talk about transgressions. But the Lord speaks frequently of it here in verses 4 through 6. We cannot walk away from verses 4 through 6 with a shallow view of sin. It's great, it's vast, it's broad. In fact, what Isaiah does here under the inspiration of Scripture is he uses all sorts of synonyms for sin and as well as for his atoning work. And he just piles up word after word after word, coming at this idea of sin and atonement from all sorts of different directions in order to intensify it for us, in order for us to have these ideas on fire in our minds of what He's speaking about. Notice all the words He uses for sin. Like in verse 4, He uses the word grief. It could be translated as sickness. Our sin is a sickness. What a metaphor for how our depravity, how deep our depravity is. He goes on to use the word sorrows. Speaking about the pain of our sin, the devastation of our sin. And just think for a moment, all the devastating consequences of our personal sin and our national sin. Sins of words, sarcasm, and harshness, bitterness, sexual sin, sins of lying, financial sin, Sins of thinking, sins of doing, they leave a devastating consequence. They leave pain. That's what it's talking about. He carried our sorrows. Notice the word there in verse 5 transgressions. He was wounded for our transgressions. Speaking about a rebellion, a revolt, not just a passive failure, not just passively not measuring up. What is sin at its essence? It's an all-out revolt against the holiness of God. Notice also there at the beginning of verse 5, he uses the word iniquities. He was crushed for our iniquities. The The Hebrew word there means that we're bent internally. We're twisted on the inside. We're perverted. We're crooked. 
We not only sin externally in open rebellion, but there's an internal bentness to us. As Luther said, we not only commit sin, we are sin. We are sin. And our sin is very personal. Look there at verse 6. He says, all of us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Every one. We're all like sheep. This metaphor of sheep, as we think about that, what do, what do sheep tell us about ourselves? Where they're, they're really unconscious, aren't they? They're not aware of anything else going on in life except the next blade of grass that they're going to eat. And that's how God views us in our sin. We're not conscious of Him even. We're not conscious of the needs of the people that are around us. Perhaps even our spouse or our family or our neighbor, we're only conscious about ourselves. What do we need? What do we want? That's what sin is like. It's so self-focused. It's so unconscious of the holiness of God. And yet, His sacrifice heals to the uttermost. As great as these three verses describe our sin, it's matched equally by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Look at the words that he piles up describing what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It says there at the beginning of verse 4, Surely He borne our griefs. That word borne there means to carry. It's used in Leviticus 16 of the scapegoat. Leviticus 16 talks about the ritual sacrifices for sin. And what they would do in Israel is they would bring out Two goats. One they would sacrifice for sin. The other one, Aaron, the high priest, would place both of his hands on the head of this scapegoat and he would confess all the sins of the nation and then they would lead that scapegoat out in the wilderness by itself and leave it there, symbolically representing the carrying away of the sin of the individual and the nation away from that individual on to another. Of course, the goat could not bear that. And so the Lord Jesus Christ needed to come and carry our sin. He borne our griefs. As I mentioned earlier, that word griefs there literally means sickness. He borne our sickness. In Matthew 8, Jesus is there with His disciples. He's called to Peter's uh, mother-in-law's side who is sick and at the point of death and he brings healing to her. And then it says just this offhanded comment, which is very common in the Gospels, that after healing uh, Peter's mother-in-law, that he cast out all sorts of demons and he healed all who were sick. And then it cites this verse right here as the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 4, that he borne our iniquities taking this verse very literally, literally that Jesus came to heal those iniquities. Now, some take this to mean that, boy, once you become a Christian, once you believe in Jesus, you can be healed of all your diseases, no matter what it is. If you have cancer, believe in Jesus, send your money in, and you'll be healed, right? You're familiar with that message. Of course, that would be taking these passages radically out of the context of the biblical witness. But we need not throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
For Jesus does not heal us instantly when we put our faith in Him. But He will heal us. It's just a matter of timing. Sickness is one of those consequences of the fall. Not necessarily of our personal sin. But it is a consequence of the fall. And we've all experienced it. Some of us have experienced it to greater measures than others. But Jesus will come back one day to complete our salvation and to take us with us, with Him one day. And we will no longer face sickness. We will no longer have grief. We will no longer have pain. We will no longer face death ever again. What Jesus does in His miracles is He gives us a little preview of what our ultimate salvation will be like. This is salvation. Not just a freedom from sin, but a freedom from the curse. An overturning completely of the curse that we were under. Praise the Lord. He bore our sickness. He goes on at the last half of verse 4. There is to say that He carried our sorrows. The word carried means that He bore a heavy load. He carried our sorrows. Lamentations 5.7 says, Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear, same word, their iniquities. We bear the iniquities of our fathers, just like we do. Make no mistake about it. We bear the sins of the generation before us. And our children will bear our sins. They will bear the consequences of our corporate sins. Steve alluded to it in his prayer. But the Lord Jesus Christ, coming in fulfillment of these verses, carried our sorrows. We will not ultimately have to bear our iniquities or the iniquities of others. Jesus Christ carried it on the cross. He goes on there at the beginning of verse 5, and it says, But He was wounded for our transgressions, or even better, Pierced. It's the strongest or one of the strongest words in the Hebrew language to describe and express violent and excruciating death. It says he was crushed for our iniquities. It means he was smashed into pieces, broken into pieces. He uses the word chastisement there in verse 5, the last half of verse 5. It says, upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Chastisement, we don't use that word very often in our day, but it means punishment. That is what's due our sins, is punishment. Punishment from a holy, wrathful, just God. Jesus took that punishment as a substitute for us in our place. And what did He give us in return? It says, Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Not just an internal feeling of calmness. But when the Bible uses the word peace, behind that word is the word shalom. And it's speaking about the Messianic age. It's speaking about the completed, consummated kingdom of God where everything will be put right. The curse will be gone. Death will be gone. Pain will be gone. You'll no longer have to lock your doors at night. 
You'll no longer have to worry about sickness or injury. You'll no longer have to worry about sinning against the Lord. Everything will be put right. That's shalom. Jesus took our punishment and in place of our punishment, He gave us peace. And then He says there in verse 5, And with His stripes we are healed. Isn't that amazing? It's not talking just about a removal of punishment from us. What did Jesus do on the cross? Did He simply remove our punishment? Did He simply remove the consequences of our sin? He did more than that. He brought restoration. He brought healing. It's an internal healing from the devastation of sin. So no matter what sin you have committed against God or against other people, God can bring restoration to that. There is no need, no call for you to walk around carrying the burden and the shame and the guilt and the devastation of that sin if you are in Jesus Christ. The cross is sufficient. And the same is true for sins that have been so devastating and so hurtful against your soul. Things that have been done to you perhaps that are absolutely horrible. You are not destined to live the rest of your life carrying that hurt, feeling as though you are a victim. For the cross is absolutely sufficient to bring healing at the absolute deepest levels of your soul. Not just when you get to heaven, for certainly it will happen in all the fullness of measure in that place, but even here and now, the Christian life is one of restoration. Dealing with sin that we have committed and bringing restoration for sins that others have committed against us by showing them and demonstrating to them the very grace of God that we have been shown that cannot happen unless you know the Lord Jesus Christ and experience His grace personally. What makes His humiliation so amazing? What makes His humiliation so amazing? Well, first of all, He heals to the uttermost. Secondly, Jesus did this voluntarily. Look at verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that was led to slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So He opened not His mouth. You're familiar with the Gospel accounts that, that record and give the accounting of Jesus on trial and how He said nothing in fulfillment of these verses. And again, it's, a, it's an analogy. It's a metaphor of sheep. A little different from verse 6. We're likened to sheep that we're unconscious of God. We keep going for that next blade of grass. Unconscious of God. Unconscious of those who are around us. But certainly that's not true of Jesus. He was fully conscious of what He was getting Himself into. He went to the cross fully conscious of those who He would die for in the, in the severe price that He would pay for sin. It says later in this song that it was out of the anguish of his soul. Going to the cross for Jesus was not easy. He wept in the garden before he went to the cross and it describes the sweat that came off his brow like great drops of blood. And he prayed to the Lord, let this cup pass from me. It was not easy. He went fully conscious to the cross. 
So what does it mean that he went like a sheep? It means that he went voluntarily. When you took the sheep to get slaughtered, it didn't protest. When you took the sheep to have it sheared for, for its wool, it didn't argue back. It was silent and went forward. This is what the metaphor is pointing to about our Savior. He went voluntarily. What makes His humiliation so utterly amazing? It brings healing to the uttermost. Jesus went voluntarily. Thirdly, the details reveal God's sovereignty over this whole process. The details reveal God's sovereignty. Look at verse 8 and 9. Prophesying His trial and His death and His burial. Mind you, Isaiah is writing 700 years prior to the coming of Christ. First of all, at the beginning of verse 8, it says that the trial would be unjust. It says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Those two words used together, oppression and judgment, uh, that word oppression has the idea of coercion. It was an oppressive trial. It wasn't a fair trial. And of course, we know from the gospel, gospel accounts just how unjust that trial was. There was a bribe involved. There was unjust, unfair, unproven charges that were brought to him. The trial happened at midnight. He went to trial when it was dark and at midnight and he was on the cross before people finished their morning coffee the next day. There was conflicting testimony. It was painfully unjust. They broke in that trial those who were trying Jesus, the Sanhedrin, broke not only the law of God, but their own internal rules for the Sanhedrin and how trials should be carried out. And it's prophesied right here. By oppression and judgment, he would be taken away. Also, it says in the last half of verse 8 that the nation would be ignorant. It says, And as for that his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Isaiah is prophesying 700 years. This servant's going to come. It's going to be an unjust trial, and the people are going to be completely unaware of what he was dying for, that he was dying for them. Thirdly, his grave would be intervened. His grave would be intervened. This is absolutely amazing. Look at verse 9. He says, And they made his grave with the writ, or with the wicked, plural. Wicked, plural. There would be more than one. And with a rich man, singular, in his death. This is amazing. What Isaiah is prophesying here is, after the trial, when they put the servant to death, they're going to appoint his grave to be with the wicked. And that's exactly what they intended to do. Remember Pilate. What, who did he intend Jesus to be buried with? They went out and broke the legs of who? All three of them. They didn't actually get to Jesus because he was already dead. But they were going to break the legs of the criminals that were on his left and on his right and they would be taken away to a place of disgrace. That was their intention but who shows up by the providential hand of God? Joseph of Arithmathea. Was he a poor man or a rich man? He was rich. He was rich. Fulfilling to a T, verse 9, they intended for his grave to be with the wicked, but he would be with a rich man in his death. 
Amazing. 700 years before him. And then the last half of verse 9 says, Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The servant had committed no crime. Now let me ask you something. Do you know what's going to happen 700 years from now? Do you know what's going to happen seven years from now? Do you know what's going to happen seven days from now? Do you know what you're going to have for lunch? 700 years prior to the coming of Christ, Isaiah said, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be the servant who's going to come in the name of God. Although he committed no crime whatsoever, he's going to be put on trial and it's going to be an unjust trial. And though they're going to intend to bury him with wicked men, he would be with a rich man in his death. As the Scriptures say, let God be found true and every man a liar. This is impossible to happen. This would be impossible to make up. These words are written in advance, 700 years in advance, in order that we might see when it becomes fulfilled that God spoke of it and therefore God is true and real and we can depend upon Him. We can trust these words and therefore if this prophecy is true and all these details came true to the T, what it's saying about this servant, we can take at its full weight and trust in Him. We can trust in Him. Well, that's why it says in verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Man was responsible in their sin, but it was part of God's sovereign plan from the very beginning of time that Jesus would do this. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And that brings us really to our second point. We've looked at the unbelievable humiliation of Jesus Christ. Unbelievable in the sense that it's hard to believe. He wasn't majestic. He wasn't royal. He wasn't kingly. But also unbelievable in how amazing it really was. And now in verses 10 through 12, it's going to talk about his unbelievable exaltation. His unbelievable exaltation. What makes Jesus exaltation so amazing? First of all, God did it. God did it. There at verse 10, I just read it. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. That word will means to delight in. God did not send His Son begrudgingly, but He sent Him purposefully. He delighted in His plan, in His righteousness, in His name, in His glory being manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question. Do you think about in your salvation that God is some, somehow angry with you and you need an in with the kind Savior Jesus in order to have access to the angry Father? That's not the case. We have to remember it was God who sent Jesus. He loved us. He gave Jesus for us that we might come to Him in Christ. He loved us. What makes, his, what makes His exaltation so amazing? God did it. He loved us. Secondly, Jesus' substitution was absolutely sufficient. Look at the last half of verse 10. 
He says, when his soul makes an offering for sin. Some of your Bibles have a better translation, offering for guilt. It's speaking about a very specific sacrifice in Leviticus 5 and 6. It was called the guilt offering. And what sets this offering apart from the others is that that offering had an exact equivalent to the need of the person and their sin that needed to be bore. And so Jesus met exactly the need that we had for a Savior. What makes His exaltation so amazing? Well, so unbelievable. God did it. His substitution was sufficient. Thirdly, Jesus' resurrection was predicted. Look there at uh, the last part of verse 10. It says, "...and the will of the Lord shall..." Actually, before that, it says, "...he will see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand." Speaking about the resurrection, it just spoke about his death. How do you have somebody dying a sacrificial death and suddenly they're seeing their days prolonged? It's speaking of his resurrection. Pretty amazing. Not only did God prophesy in advance 700 years before it would happen that His trial would be unjust, that the nation would be ignorant, that His grave would be intervened with, that He would come and have committed no crime, that He also prophesied the resurrection of this individual. It's amazing. It's impossible. Only God could do that. And therefore, we must believe it. Let me give you another reason why this is so amazing. Jesus' death and resurrection was effective. Look at verse 11. It says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Micah 6-7 says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of Rivers of oil, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for sin, for the sin of my soul? Could I give all these animals? Could I give my firstborn to cover my sin? Would that be enough, God? Could never be enough. And yet Jesus came and He gave His life on the cross for ours. And it says He made us to be accounted righteous. He took our sin And He gave us His righteousness in exchange. It wasn't as though Jesus just came and sojourned with us under the curse. But according to Galatians 3.13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It wasn't as though Jesus came and He suffered with us and He lived with us in a world filled with sin. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It was effective. It was efficient. There's nothing lacking in the sacrifice of Christ. Lastly, what makes Jesus' exaltation so amazing, so unbelievable, is that we will share His victory. Look at verse 12. Speaking of Christ, he says, this is the Father. He says, I will divide Him. So, therefore, I, God the Father, will divide Him, Jesus, a portion with the many. And then in turn, He, Jesus, shall provide the spoil with the strong. Who are the strong? That's us. 
Do you realize that label strong, that description of strong is the first positive description of you and I in this song? Prior to this, we have been transgressors. People who have committed iniquity. We've been dumb sheep. But in Christ, we're accounted righteous. And in Him, we are accounted with the strong. Not because of ourselves, but because of what Jesus Christ has done and how effective that is for us. Praise God! Praise God! Jesus' humiliation is absolutely unbelievable. Unbelievable in the sense that it's hard to believe. He's not the Savior King that we would have picked. He was the one God picked. But His humiliation is also unbelievable in the sense that it's amazing that God did this for us. Motivated out of love. It's amazing how sufficient it was. His exaltation is also unbelievable in how absolutely amazing it is. How do we respond to that? How do we respond to the unbelievable servant? Very simply, let him serve you. Let the servant serve you. Remember in that upper room, when Jesus is preparing to wash the feet of the disciples, and Peter acted very much like I think you and I would in that same setting, He says, you shall never wash my feet. Oh no, Lord, I should be serving you. I should be working for you. You are the Lord. You are the King. You are the one that's worthy. Why should you serve me, Jesus? Something's not right about this. And Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Let Him serve you. Let Him serve you in your depravity and in your sin. Let Him serve you in that sin that you've committed that you cannot seem to shake. In that sin and in that guilt and in that shame that haunts you year after year. Let Him serve you for all the sins of 2012. Do not allow those sins haunt you into 2013. Do not let the sins of yesterday haunt you into today. Let Him serve you by receiving His work as complete, as sufficient, and as effective, and rest in Him. That is what He came to do. Rest in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that when we were lost, when we were like sheep, each one of us having turned our own way, We were unconscious of You, but You were not unconscious of us. And You sent Jesus to serve our greatest need. Help us to rest in Him. Help us to unburden our souls and cast all our sin and shame and guilt fully on Him and rest in Him as our righteousness. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.